0: If it comes to drinking, excessive drinking, uh, the Brabant people are very creative, so they I will say, find ways. They to, will find, yeah,
1: they will find p- a way. Brabant finds yeah. a way. It's Friday, February the 5th, and this is the Dutch News podcast, your weekly chance to catch up with what's been going on here in the Netherlands. I'm Gordon Darroch, Dutch News Contributing Editor and Sledging Enthusiast, and with me today is Paul Peters, Master's Student in Civil Engineering and Compulsive Fact-Checker. Later in the podcast, we have an interview with Malachas Hagen, the London correspondent for NSA Handelsblad, who gives us a Dutchman's insight into an eventful few years in the UK as he prepares to return to Amsterdam.
0: Eventful few years in the UK. Did anything happen in the UK the past I, years?
1: I think it was pretty quiet, really. Yeah. I've yeah, the, the, I thought the, the, so too. The, they might have brought out a new brand of tea or something, but uh, mm. yeah, I didn't didn't something hear much like from over there. No. Indeed. Yeah. But anyway, Melo will fill us in on whatever's been happening. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Finally, we'll hear what happened yeah. there, over there. Yeah. <laughs> that, that, that big news vacuum. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Paul, you've been getting into your fact-checking uh, this week, uh, particularly with um, respect to somebody who uh, regularly uh, needs a good fact-checking. So uh, what's been happening? Uh, I think you are
0: referring to Cherry Baudet.
1: Yeah, I think there are a couple of instances, but uh, yeah, for Cheruboder and Cheruboder's graphs, I think uh, were.
0: Exactly. Yeah, Cheruboder, as always, is tweeting um, a lot of misleading uh, information, (laughs) and uh, he did it again this week. He uh, showed a graph that compared the number of corona um, infections in Israel and Sweden. Um, And he said Israel has the uh, maximum lockdown uh, you can imagine, and Sweden has, of course, the 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 least strict restrictions uh uh, well in the western world perhaps Mm -hmm. in the world i don't know Um, but he forgot to mention that israel is wasn't permanently in lockdown there were they went in lockdown uh halfway in september and they went out of it halfway uh, october and their numbers uh it dropped dramatically and now again uh I, be- I think in the beginning of january they went into a lockdown again and of course um uh, at first your numbers are going up because the lockdown doesn't have immediate effect yeah. only after two or three weeks and then uh uh, uh it, it reduces drastically and it just uh and that's exactly what what his graph showed if he pointed out when in in time these lockdowns um started and when they ended yeah so i i helped them a little bit with that <laughs> yeah yeah with, with some nice
1: like hand-drawn uh, details on the <laughs> on the graph which, which is yeah. a nice touch i like that
0: it can be so easy
1: yeah i know yeah it's, 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 yeah, it's so easy just to add a few facts
0: there yeah. was another one he tweeted somewhere in the middle of the night uh yeah at around 1 a.m yeah. i was uh, <laughs> awake at the time for uh well i for don't for know exactly reasons. yeah i saw i saw that he tweeted a, a reconstruction of one of trump's personal attorneys i think who uh sort of um Talked her way into the White House and she wrote a very long uh, reconstruction about it. And it was published on this uh, right wing uh, yeah. website. And he shared it and he said, Well, this is the best reconstruction I ever read. And you will never find something like that in the Dutch press. But then I immediately uh, got reminded to this reconstruction of the infamous uh, dinner Cherry Boder had mm. with his uh, uh, top 10 candidates, <laughs> uh, where he, um, uh, well, exposed himself to be not only anti but a but a full-blown conspiracy lunatic so yeah i screenshotted a a link to um uh to to that to my favorite reconstruction pointing out that i particularly like this one in the dutch press as well
1: yeah, yes, yeah, yes. Yeah. So, 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 so you see, I had a busy week, uh, basically, just uh, uh, correcting <laughs>
0: exactly uh, cre- yeah, commentaries. other. Yeah. Yeah, this
1: could be a full-time job, to be honest. if, yeah. you, if, if, if you felt so inclined, but I suspect you it don't. It could be, yeah,
0: yeah. Unfortunately, it doesn't pay that well, so I don't no. think I will uh, <laughs> continue with it. Yeah,
1: you get lots of exposure, though, which apparently is the only currency that counts in. Uh,
0: and uh, wh- what are you a sledging enthusiast? Yeah, I'm because g- uh,
1: we're going to get some snow this weekend. Apparently, some uh, heavy snow for the first time in about a decade. <laughs> And yeah. I have I've, I've a sledge that I bought the last time it snowed and it's been out once, <laughs> I think, in all that time. So it's finally uh, going to get out. And I mean, I live in one of the very few places in the Netherlands where you actually get a few slopes because we got the dunes um, out yeah. uh, out in The Hague. Uh, so I'm hoping that, uh, yeah, we can actually get the, the sledge out. Though obviously, probably because of uh. lockdown restrictions, the police will be out uh, turning everyone away at the foot of the uh, dune paths. I, I, I suspect <laughs> that's what's going to happen. But, uh, you You're know. You're just
0: going to have to go there very early or very yeah. late with the dog.
1: Yeah. One. Yeah. Is, is exactly. I'll borrow a dog from somewhere, and then I can go sledge, yeah. sledge until midnight. That that
0: that'll indeed. be the. Well, actually, you're a payer aren't you? I am, yes. Yeah, so I could so just give myself, just, uh, I could give myself
1: permission. I could write a permission slip saying that, yeah, in the interest of journalistic research, I'm finding I out. Have yeah, I June. have to sledge from the tune I have to sledge, you know, and then write a <laughs> uh, first person article about it.
0: Yeah, that's fine. This is a watertight strategy. Yeah, here.
1: watertight defence. Yeah,
0: yeah, nothing can go wrong.
1: Yeah, but anyway I'm looking no. forward to a bit of snow. You, you, yeah, uh, you're not looking forward to the snow so much, I think.
0: Well, I have to drive all day on Sunday, so yeah. I'm not uh, not not particularly happy with the snow. Um, from what I've seen from the weather forecast, is that the snow uh, line is is exactly at the Dijk bridges, so the south mm. of the Netherlands, where I'm gonna have to uh, drive all day, uh, will supposedly not be uh, will we'll not see that much snow, but I, we're not sure yet. So I, I'm hoping that 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 will be the case. Yeah,
1: yeah. Are you allowed to drive into Belgium? Because that could be the, your solution. Uh,
0: yeah just, i just think take i bookings am. from belgians yeah i'm not sure uh, if i'm allowed to go into belgium we will see i, yeah. I always <laughs> uh, i always i never keep track of all the restrictions and all the rules because they change so uh so often
1: yeah particularly the border rules so we're coming up to the election uh, now and uh, that's uh, started to generate uh, election rated ophef and we've got the first one uh, this week so uh to, to, to tell us uh, about uh what's this week's big ophef
0: Yeah, um, we will hear about this more in the podcast uh, later on, but uh, 44 parties are participating in uh, the elections, and that is a record number, Uh, and op have about... One of the many hundreds of candidates is simply unavoidable, as you said. And this week, it is the turn of the Islamic Party Partij van de Eenheid, which will take part in election for the first time this year. Even though I do, I do think they already have seats in the um, local council of the yeah, Hague. Yeah, they have got uh, seats in
1: in Rotterdam, I think, as well. Also, no, hmm. Rotterdam is Nida. There's a different uh, Islamic party. Ah. But yeah, I think Partij van de Eenheid is in the Hague, because yes, it's Anne van Dorn's home hometown. Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. yeah. Uh, the number three on the candidate list Jolisa Brouwer turns out to own a bakery specialized in cakes and cupcakes in the shape of penises uh, dozens <laughs> of examples of pastries in the shape of the male reproductive organs can be seen on her website and she's also apparently a well-known face on the annual Kama Sutra beurs an erotic festival in Utrecht and even though her website specifically says the ingredients of the uh, phallus cakes are in fact halal <laughs> the Partij van de Eenheid said it was shocked to to learn about Brouwer's Bakery after it received tips from anonymous supporters mm. um, if the party had known of her activities she would never have been put on the candidate list according to party leader Arnout van Doorn who is a former PVV city councillor <laughs> but converted to Islam in 2013 you can write a book about this guy yeah. I read a little uh, biography of him um, as I was preparing for this um, uh, this segment and mm. it was just amazing what he what he've done yeah, and, uh, it's a
1: famous case isn't it yeah, it started out as a a hardline Geert Wilder's disciple and uh, then converted to Islam yeah and also
0: yeah. Uh, uh, leaked secrets from the from the city council <laughs> and uh, yeah he, he did many things so um, yeah if you uh, if you want to uh, have a laugh google this guy yeah. and you will uh, <laughs> you will learn everything about it yeah. um, because of the op-half Brouwer has decided to quit and she has stepped down as a party candidate but the op-half however has a silver lining for her because the orders on her website have skyrocketed in the past few days ah oh, good so, so, so healthy sales of uh, phallus-shaped cakes
1: in Exactly. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And I was impressed with the fact that with the, the detail that they were halal cakes as well. Yeah, she really, you know.
0: I, I, I was also impressed uh, has, has with that. she
1: always made halal cakes or was this just a new thing since she joined the <laughs> Pate von der <laughs> Since she joined the party,
0: Yeah. I,
1: I, I, I yeah, didn't But maybe, maybe that she thought to research. herself, I'm, I'm not quite sure about these phallus cakes, but if I make them halal, then it'll be Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah,
0: indeed. <laughs> it's also unknown if if she always pointed them towards Mecca. I'm not sure yes, if she did. Yes, that's that. another thing we should yeah. uh,
1: investigate. But
0: uh, at the risk of going full
1: wappy, it's almost uh, worth speculating on whether she actually um, uh, she, she engineered this whole ophef uh, in order to boost sales of her cakes. And I, to, uh, as I a, like a free wouldn't. advertising strategy
0: exactly <laughs> i wouldn't be that surprised to be honest because it's just it seems to be just the weirdest thing for her uh to join a party like that and to be a number th- i it's just it's a crazy story it's a weird story indeed and uh, i wouldn't be surprised if there were was more um uh, behind it This week we tell you how the government's preparing for an expected surge in
1: coronavirus infections, why Brexit has prompted a surge in businesses crossing the North Sea, and why there's been a surge in political parties contesting next month's election. And in the second half of the podcast, I'll be speaking to Malachas Haagen about his action-packed stint as a foreign correspondent in London. It looks increasingly likely that the 9pm curfew that was brought in two weeks ago will be extended beyond next Wednesday morning. Although the number of infections fell by 20% in the RFM's latest weekly report on Tuesday, there are warning signs that the more infectious B one one seven strain, also known as the British virus, is gaining ground. Prime Minister Mark Rutte said at his press conference on Tuesday evening that the new variant was 50% more effective and the outbreak management team has calculated that it's already responsible for two-thirds of all infections. So it's all the Brits' fault that we're staying locked down to March. Blame them.
0: Even though we don't have any Brits in Amsterdam,
1: yeah, indeed. So That's an been, ironic thing. Yeah, they've all been driven out of the coffee shops, but uh, yeah, yeah, they've left their mark in the <laughs> in, in the form of in, this uh, yeah m- mutated new virus.
0: Indeed, yeah, I have to admit that I'm happy that the uh, with the extension of the curfew because it it it. It seemed to be very weird to have it only in effect for two weeks. Yeah. Then it would have meant that the um, that the, the the public debate about the curfew would have lasted longer <laughs> than the actual curfew. So yeah. I'm just happy that we we are not put in this awkward position. So I'm happy with the extension. Yeah. Also, it doesn't affect me in any way, so I don't mind at all.
1: Yeah, it doesn't affect me much either. I, I was never going out before nine o'clock in the first place. Yeah, <laughs> and also, of course, I mean the debate in parliament almost lasted longer than the entire curfew as well. <laughs> And whether or not to put it back half an hour but yeah it would have been weird I, I agree that uh, after two weeks which is just the point when you can see whether or not it's having any effect that they were going to lift it yeah. so yeah an extension seems uh, a sensible thing to do
0: yeah, indeed. Um, and also the schools are starting uh, again, aren't they?
1: Yes, even though uh, that's been seen uh, by many as a risky move, including many teachers and parents, because uh, the RVM says a third wave is inevitable. Uh, primary school children will be returning on Monday, but with extra restrictions. Uh, they're still, I think, in the process of drawing up exactly what those should be. So it's all a bit rushed. Uh, if any child in a class tests positive, the whole class will have to go into quarantine, which sort of sounds like a sort of bizarre school punishment, you know. <laughs> but, uh, and, yeah. and they have to take Or not. It, yeah. Yeah, or not yeah uh, yes yeah, so, yeah, so just instead of going to detention you get you get quarantined for ten days, um, and yeah. they'll have to take a test after five days, but if they don't want to take the test because you can't force children to take tests uh, uh, medical tests, then they'll have to stay at school for ten days.
0: Um, Couldn't they just uh, put all these uh, students then in one classroom and just seal it for for 10 days and have a little, uh, what's that book called? Uh, Lord of the Flies. Lord of the Flies, yeah. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Have a a nice reenactment of Lord of the Flies uh, in that classroom. Or (laughs) would that be just a little bit too. uh, No,
1: I I think it would be fine. And then uh, in 30 years' time, Rudolf Brechtmann could write a book about it.
0: no we have to avoid this at all costs <laughs> <laughs> I changed my opinion <laughs> very sure. very very rapidly now yeah. this,
1: the, the children have been saved uh, for the, uh, because of the threat of uh, an, another book by Brecht 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 Man, Man. yeah yeah <laughs> Not everybody's happy with these new rules. Uh, one group of 31 schools in the berknobs area is refusing to open because the risks to pupils and teachers are unclear, they say. In Kroninger, a school group says some staff members with health conditions don't feel safe going back to work. And the chairman of the primary schools council, Linda de Besten, said it was extremely irritating that the protocol for reopening schools was being published so late.
0: Yeah, I can, I can understand that, yeah. Um, and what are the other changes? Yeah, the only
1: other real substantial change is the shops... Uh, non-essential shops uh, will now be able to open up but only as pickup points Uh, so you'll have to go Mm. to the door you have to order online wait for four hours to deter what Margaret calls fun shopping um, (laughs) and then go to the door and collect your goods uh, after that time
0: he has a point here because i was at the um uh, at the gamma the um diy um shop yeah. uh i think three weeks ago four weeks ago or something i i uh, there was a package delivered there so i went there and there was this couple that came out of a car and they uh wanted to buy something but of course the shop was closed and then they saw uh, what they want in 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 the windows and they just ordered it online and went to the back of the of the gamma well, and they just, picked just it up sat there, there. in the car and ordered it on the phone
2: yeah, nice. and then yeah.
0: Uh, a minute later they just uh, went around and picked it up, so I think he has a point here. Mm. And uh, yeah, and um, the cabinet is planning to bring
1: in compulsory quarantining for incoming travellers later this month. Uh, until then, flights from Britain, South Africa and South American countries remain banned.
0: And uh, how are the numbers looking at the moment?
1: Yeah, they're declining about 17-18% a week at the moment, uh, so still fairly steady. And the average number of cases per day is below 4,000. Um, it does look as if the decline is starting to slow down, and also the The positive test rate is uh, not coming down below 11%, which I think is a bit worrying.
0: Um,
1: There's better news in the hospitals. The total number of patients is down to just over 2,100, and there are 600 people now in intensive care. Uh, Still pretty high numbers, but down by around 20% since the start of the year, which is kind of the peak. So yeah, if we get a shift on with the vaccines, we might start to see a light at the end of the tunnel. Wonder how uh, everything is going with the vaccines. Yeah, yeah, indeed. So, speaking of the vaccines, Paul, uh, t- 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 tell us about the latest.
0: Yeah, we talked about it countless of times on the podcast, and this week we can again add another chapter to the absolute train wreck that is the Dutch corona vaccination strategy, which at this point makes less sense than a bluff uh, lyric, I have to admit. <laughs> um, if Murphy's Law ever needs to be renamed, we should call it Hugo's Law. That's my uh, second proposal. Mm-hmm. And Health Minister Hugo de Jonge was, uh, of course, heavily criticized for the Dutch vaccination program in the past months. Uh, the Netherlands started weeks later than other countries, and the rate of vaccination is also very low, despite the fact that hundreds of thousands of vaccinations are currently in store in os As a result, the Netherlands uh, was, uh, apart from Bulgaria, the slowest in the European Union, but Hugo de Jonge promised we would catch up in the coming weeks, and he promised last week that 200,000 people would receive a vaccination within 7 days. And on Sunday, all of the sudden, 120,000 vaccinations were added to the total number on the corona dashboard, bringing the total to around 347,000, and it also meant that Hugo de Jonge did keep his promise after all. Where the These vaccines come from, you ask. The health ministry decided to use a new calculation method. A new calculation method. Uh, Did they just make these numbers magically appear or make them up? Or can you explain how it actually works? Yeah, you would think the logical uh, calculation method would be just adding all the vaccinations (laughs) together. But they chose a different strategy. That was too easy, obviously. That was too easy. (laughs) Um, The health ministry explained that the vaccination figures do not come from a centralized source Something they couldn't have possibly seen coming, of no. course, but they come from three separate sources. The network of local health boards, the GGDs, update their vaccination figures daily, but the other two, hospitals and the long term care sector, take much longer to process their numbers. And as a result, the total number of vaccines is underreported and the ministry decided to change the calculation method to an estimation based on the number of vaccines distributed from us. Hmm. The one hundred twenty thousand extra vaccines propelled the Netherlands to the twenty six Place in the EU, and uh, we overtook uh, Latvia, Luxembourg, and Croatia.
1: Yeah, well, we overtook Luxembourg, so you know it's. Uh that's, yeah, that's, that's very everything important. that matters that's as long milestone. as we do better counts, than really.
0: No that's not not true as lo- I, I want us to do better than Belgium. Have that's what we yeah. in life yeah. Yeah. yeah.
1: yeah, we are catching Belgium I think we're, we're creeping yeah. up on them. But
0: yeah. Uh, yeah, so so
1: I guess we, we do have to uh, to be fair to what looks like a more accurate um uh, record of the number of vaccines that actually been given but this is clearly done just for basically pure, pure PR reasons isn't it because he was getting stick yeah. for the low level yeah. of
0: vaccine nation yeah so everything
1: yeah. went well and everyone was happy
0: no of course not <laughs> um, the, the ministry and Hugo de Jonge's that hospitals were given incomplete information and that they were very slow in reporting made the hospitals furious the National Acute Care Network LNAZ described the Jonge's statements as blatantly untrue, the organization told Algemeen Dagblad it had reported all their figures uh, on a daily basis since January 6th and even worse than making hospitals angry, on Tuesday it turns out that the new best estimate figures were Inaccurate. Over 17,000 injections were counted twice in the new and better calculation method. Uh, the Corona Desperate explained the double counting occurred because uh, some of the vaccinations in care homes were also included in the hospital numbers. Mm. The vaccines were initially delivered to hospital pharmacies, which had been helping with the logistic process. And according to the Corona Desperate, a little less than uh, 455,000 injections were carried out until now. And that is 2.6% of the population. So now everything is going well, right? And everyone's happy. No, of course not. Uh, on Wednesday, at a vaccination location in Alkmaar, dozens of elderly people, many over the age of 90, had to wait outside in the cold and rain before they could go inside. Photos on social media caused a lot of uphef, and other vaccination locations saw similar scenes, such as at Schiphol and in Den Bosch. Some people had to wait over 45 minutes outside before they could go in, and the GGD said they are looking into ways to improve the waiting lines, which no. is just putting up a tent with a heater and that's your solution I guess Yeah. Um, they also said that many of these elderly people tend to come very early so they mm. have an appointment at a given time and they show up an hour earlier so that also contributed to the long lines and um, also this <laughs> GGD um, uh, spokeswoman she complained about uh, the elderly people taking off their jackets and coats which uh, took a very long time So yeah, yeah, again
1: um, that's something you couldn't possibly see coming right? <laughs> <laughs> exactly yeah, yeah, it's yeah. They've they got a little tent with a heater and uh, a, a, a thermos flask of coffee and some biscuits. Okay, like, uh, yeah.
0: yeah, and a couple of chairs, and uh, yeah. that's your solution. That's and yeah. Really, the level of incompetence <laughs> of everyone involved is just yeah. staggering. It is a level it's
1: of just yeah. It's astonishing how many things that uh, were obviously going to happen just weren't foreseen somehow.
0: Exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But I, I'm, I'm just sorry. curious: is this is this really something that only happens in the Netherlands, or do do other countries have these sort of um, mistakes as well? I mean, I'm just focused on the <laughs> Netherlands, so I have no way how yeah. how, how things are going in I Germany. I don't know. I'm Belgium. guessing it's
1: probably happening in other places as well, and you just don't hear about it. But yeah, I just thought you know, anyone who's organised a school parents evening or something, you know, I mean, given the schools are off at the moment, maybe should they just get the head teachers to organise this because they always do it very well, you know, when you
0: <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Exactly, <laughs> or as someone who works at an elderly care uh, home, uh, yeah. what do you need if we if we if we invite uh, uh, yeah. hundreds of, of ninety-plus-year-old people uh, to yeah. this place? Do we do we need chairs? Do we need yeah. something to sure. warm them up? Do we need to make them comfortable? I mean, it's just uh, it, it, these are just open doors which they just don't seem to uh, yeah. see. It's just. Yeah
1: yeah and of course mixed into this of course we also have the astrazeneca debacle only because um, the astrazeneca are now delivering fewer vaccines so they got to revise the vaccine schedule again and now yeah. the medicines agency has said advised not to give astrazeneca to people over 65 and of course those are the people who were next in line well people, actually people over 75 i think were next in line to be in, in vaccinated so they would go back and do their maths again
0: yeah, 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 but I'm yeah. kind of I um, don't know. I'm
1: getting a little bit more optimistic about the vaccination because they they ordered another batch of Moderna vaccines uh, this week, and they published a schedule which looks plausible to me that uh, they should vaccinate about two hundred fifty thousand people for the next few weeks, and then four hundred fifty thousand in April and May, and seven hundred thousand in June. This does look yeah. feasible when you look at the vaccine orders and the logistics of it, and that would mean you could actually get through everybody by I think about the end of August. So.
0: Yeah exactly uh, it it just uh, if you look at the future and uh, uh, you know all the orders that we have then um, everything will be fine but it still it still remains just yeah um, um just the weirdest thing that we started 2 weeks after the rest of the European Union uh, and uh, we were so slow it just seemed to be very very strange yeah, to me yeah it's just
1: it's just painful to watch really it's just yeah. like a car crash in very very slow motion
0: Speaking of uh, car crashes in (laughs) slow motion, Brexit. Yes,
1: because the Netherlands Foreign Investment Agency says it's been approached by around 500 British companies about relocating or moving part of their operations to the Netherlands. The agency wouldn't say which companies it was in talks with, but it said some companies had serious plans to base themselves here, while others were sounding out several EU countries about a possible move. The NFIA said the last quarter of 2020 had been its busiest period since the Brexit referendum in 2016, Quote, it has become clear what can and cannot be done with regard to exporting to the EU and buying from different suppliers, said a spokesman. And the short answer to that is you can't do anything uh, without <laughs> filling in about 20 different forms and sticking you a You customs- can't
0: even bring a ham sandwich.
1: No, you get your ham sandwiches confiscated at the border Yeah, as a health yes. hazard. Yeah, It is weird, though. I mean, I started receiving parcels of the UK now, and they've got these stickers on, on them with like, customs declarations. And it's like going back yeah. to the early 1980s or something.
0: Yeah, Which is, yeah oh, And they, it's, take, uh, they
1: take two weeks to arrive And they cost about three times as much to post as well And everyone in the UK surreal, is grumbling about it, it. Yeah. Yeah. In 2019, 78 companies Set up shop in the Netherlands for Brexit Related reasons, and the NFA will Publish its official figures for 2020 Later this month, but it seems pretty sure that That's going to be a much bigger number so
0: what exactly is it that is prompting british companies to take their businesses to uh, the netherlands well one organization pushing them in that direction is believe it or not the british government <laughs> so yeah
1: ha- having argued for brexit on the basis it would create more jobs in britain and uh, more uh, more business for britain uh, they're now suggesting that we should create more jobs for the eu the <laughs> department for international trade has advised companies to set up branches in the european union to get around all the extra paperwork that came with brexit and uh, so they can trade their goods freely yeah uh, two things that during the brexit campaign everyone insisted or everyone on the pro-brexit side insisted wouldn't happen andrew moss who runs horizon retail marketing solutions in cambridgeshire told the observer he registered a company in the netherlands after talking to a government advisor in london he's also laying off staff in britain and taking on employees in the netherlands
0: okay so uh, brexit turns out to be good business for the netherlands yeah, brexit means jobs for the dutch yeah yeah well wow, excellent yeah also, it's very fun to see the uh, the the uh, UK government uh, moving to uh, to the EU. Yeah, it's, yeah, uh, I, it's ironic, I, isn't it?
1: Yeah, I guess in their defence, I mean, uh, it means the the foreigners foreigners aren't going over there and stealing their jobs. They're just staying here and stealing their jobs. So <laughs> yeah, I don't exactly. know. Maybe they can count that as a, as a positive, as
0: a win. They will spin it around <laughs> somehow. Will. I'm sure. If your company is rigging the
1: sails to hop across the North Sea, or you're already on board in the Netherlands, or you rely on us to keep your knowledge of Dutch current affairs on an even keel, why not sponsor us on Patreon? For as little as a dollar or a euro a month, you can help us to help you stay up to date on all the latest news and political developments. In return, you'll earn our eternal gratitude, a shout out on the next podcast, and the chance to ask us a question. And existing patrons, or even non-patrons, are very welcome to chip in with a question at any time. We might even have a stab at answering them, but we uh, always enjoy uh, receiving them anyway.
0: Yeah, we want to know how, is the faction, do you do, do do you in your country have a Hugo de Jonge as well? I want to know. <laughs> yeah. yeah, does every country
1: have a Hugo de Jonge? Is everyone messing up their vaccinations? Because I see lots of people in Germany. Everyone thinks Germany has got their vaccinations uh, scrupulously organized, and yet lots of Germans are complaining that it's all grinding to a halt and going wrong. So,
0: hmm. yeah. Interesting, yeah.
1: This week we say welcome and thank you to new patron Lev Tatarov. So, uh, thanks to you and thanks to everyone else who sponsored us. If you'd like to join our select band of socially distancing patrons, log on to patreon.com, that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com
0: slash Dutch News NL. The election board announced a record number of 41 parties will take part in the general election of March 15, 16 and 17, breaking the record of 2017 when 28 parties were on the ballots. In December 89 parties had registered to take part in the election, but 47 failed to file required documents before the deadline expired earlier this week. All 15 parties currently represented in the Tweede Kamer will take part, as well as parties who tried before but never won a seat, such as Jezus Leeft and Silvana Simonses by one. Newcomers include Ja21, the party of former FAD representatives who left the party en masse in November and December 2020, and the Face partij of notorious royal family fan Johan Vlemmings. Um, we also have BBB, a party founded by Angry Farmers, and Wij Zijn Nederland, which I assume is a party by uh, anti corona protesters. Yeah, it's a Luxembourg flag party, really, isn't it? The Luxembourg yeah, flag yeah. party, we should call it. Yeah indeed. It's uh Wij is one it's the slogan that that these protesters always yell yeah. and sing uh, at these uh, demonstrations, yeah. yeah. Um it is not certain however that we will see all 41 parties on the ballot. The size of a bed sheet in March, uh, 35 parties didn't meet all requirements yet. For example, they didn't pay the required 11,250 euros to Participate in elections yet, or made mistakes in their paperwork, and hmm. parties have until today to correct their errors. And Gordon, which parties in the Tweede Kamer do you think filed all their paperwork correctly?
1: Which ones did file their paperwork correctly? Um, yes. Well, definitely not uh, the the Day. Uh, the, 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 they'll yeah. turn up a missing document in about ten years' time. <laughs> <laughs> and the three they ministers they will have to Indeed. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so yeah, I think uh, probably. Uh, I mean, the the, the 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 SKP will definitely have filed all the paperwork yeah. immaculately. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, the Christian they uni. Did. Uh probably all the coalition nope. parties if I'm being serious. Nope. No, well nope. okay, so uh the the CDR didn't? No, nope. the Faith A didn't? Nope. Uh didn't? Nope. <laughs> and the Christian uni? Nope. <laughs> so none of those four parties are actually uh, eligible nope. to take part in the election
0: right now? Yet, indeed, yeah. uh, they they have until now to, to until today to correct uh, the errors. Now the only parties, and there are only five if I count fast, yeah, the only five parties who did everything correct once, and that was the PVV, yeah. the SGP, Partij voor de Dieren, Denk, and that's it. Yeah, so four parties. Four parties, yeah. yeah. The rest uh, the rest is just uh, made errors So you can mistakes. look forward to
1: a PVV-Denk coalition
0: um, <laughs> after the election then. <laughs> we could perhaps uh, look forward to that indeed, yeah. Yeah, oh, imagine, and, yeah. Imagine imagine a Tweede Kamer with only PVV, SGP, Partij voor de Dieren and Denk. I'm fascinated by the idea of a cabinet with Geert Wilders and uh, Freed Azekan.
1: That would just be brilliant television. <laughs>
0: yeah indeed yeah and um by ain also um uh did everything correct oh, all right uh, so if Siemens yeah, can join them too go. so yeah they can uh, also join the coalition yeah <laughs> wow that would be that would be a that'd be explosive yeah. that would be an explosive <laughs> scenario indeed i would i would pay to see that To absolutely. be absolutely yeah they Just could for sell fun. tickets
1: outside the trailer camera once yeah. they can yeah. reopen with a full audience It'd Be better than eurovision indeed. which we're coming on yeah. to later
0: <laughs> even though i have to I have to say if only these five parties will t- participate. Then I think PVV will get an absolute majority in yes. the Tweede Kamer. So they're, they're not, they're, they don't—they don't have to form a coalition at all in this. Willem well, so.
1: filling all the ministerial posts on his own because uh, you know he, <laughs> he has no other party members. <laughs>
0: This scenario keeps getting worse. (laughs) Let's move 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 on.
1: on. (laughs) So, Paul, the Trader Camera has now drawn up a list of controversial topics that have to stay off bounds for the cabinet until the new government is formed. Uh, So what's on the list? What can they not uh, legislate on?
0: Yeah, first of all, the reason for this list is because the government officially resigned two weeks ago and the cabinet is now a caretaker government. And it basically m- means that we are waiting until a new government can take over. And this won't happen, of course, after the elections and after a new coalition is formed. And that will take a very, very, very long time, mm-hmm. as we know, as we have seen the last time. Yeah. Um, and until that time, the topics on this list are declared controversial. And these topics include opening Lelystad airports to commercial flights, uh, as well as increasing paid parental leave. And the very broad subject of climate is also declared controversial. Uh, Asylum issues, including bringing in some refugees from camps on Greek islands, uh, is also uh, declared controversial. And just to put things in perspective, under normal circumstances, the list of controversial topics would have been drawn up in the weeks before the Tweede Kamer uh, would go on election recess. Uh, The cabinet's resignation meant this list was created not next week, but this week, hmm. just to give you an impression, how little effect stepping down of the cabinet actually had.
1: Yeah, indeed. Yeah, um, I'm curious that they've included uh, the, uh, the, the, the the asylum issues, given that uh, the, 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 they haven't even made a start on uh, bringing in the last lot of refugees that they promised to. Uh, no, indeed. To bring to yeah. the Country. So.
0: And it's also mm. a very hot topic uh, right now. So it is um, indeed. Yeah.
1: yeah. And then of course, so, yeah, the famous Lelystadt Airport. When I mean, there wasn't going to be any progress on that anyway. So. That's no,
0: not, is the Airport is the vaccination program of, of <laughs> infrastructural projects in, in the Netherlands. Yeah, yeah, it's just kind of the Berlin
1: Brandenburg Airport, uh, the back on a smaller <laughs> scale. Uh, in, 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 exactly. In yeah, on a much yeah. smaller scale. I have to <laughs> yes. admit that, but it is similar indeed. Yeah. And speaking of the election recess, uh, why was yeah? There's a bit of a dust up this uh, week between Trade Camera Speaker kadir Arib and uh, Henk Kroll, So tell us about that.
0: Yeah, uh, Hank Kohl put a motion to the vote to cancel the election recess. Uh, he tweeted it was indefensible that the Kamer would go on holiday uh, that was the word he used for the next five weeks during the pandemic but Arip told Kohl his impression that MPs would go on holiday was disrespectful to Parliament uh, as an institution and also to the staff members that will just simply keep working hard the coming weeks and she pointed out that it's simply untrue, the Kamer is going on holiday and MPs will have uh, still have debates with Hugo de Jonge and Mark Rutte, and they will have to vote on stuff. So it's uh, definitely not true that uh, they are going, uh, yeah. well, they can't go anywhere, but uh, that they would theoretically go to uh, Curaçao and uh, um, drink uh, only drink cocktails on the beach over there. Yeah,
1: yeah, and then, yeah, and of course they have got the small matter of an election campaign as well. Um, was Henk is worried because he's leaving parliament, and he was uh, worried about getting his pension? <laughs> yeah i
0: think so i i he according to the polls he is not likely to be reelected again so mm. i think he was just uh he just didn't want this to be his last week and that's why he uh he wanted everybody to stay that's my theory at least but uh, yeah. yeah yeah and i also uh, speaking of hank Cole, my theory is that in the past weeks he has been um, sort of leaning towards uh, the forum for democracy and Cherry Baudet for example he proposed to have a debate on the build back better slogan uh, which is a dog whistle for QAnon uh, conspiracy theorists oh, yes. which is of course traditionally uh, the uh, the electoral base of Cherry uh, Baudet um, but uh, Hank Kuhl all of a sudden gets a lot of praise and a lot of appreciation by Day voters and I assume my theory is that he is doing uh, 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 he, he is uh, applying the same strategy as Van Haga did. Hmm. Uh, when Haga became an uh, independent MP, initially he wasn't welcome at the Day party, but he uh, did the same thing. He uh, he appealed to uh, to the voters of day and all of a sudden he was welcomed in the party. Yeah. And my theory is that Hank Cole, who doesn't see you know he doesn't have a job in 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 the coming future, so he's trying to to get uh, uh, t- t- to get invited in the day party perhaps maybe he will be the the next um, leader of the fad party in uh north brabant when, ah. when the new provincial elections will be that's my that's my running theory but no, this is just uh, i'm just speculating now but that's <laughs> my uh that is something that i see in the in my glass ball that i have in front of me
1: right okay that's really interesting i've got to say it's not the worst uh, theory associated with fad i've heard uh, this week but uh, yeah <laughs> so, uh, i'd love to, to see if it transpires uh, yeah but yeah, it's interesting he's kind of seems to be gravitating towards uh, uh, FADA. He's 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 a famous political chameleon, isn't he? Henk uh, Cole. Yeah. He's he's worn various hats over the course of his career. So yeah. Yeah, FA Day is it. his next move.
0: And it would also be very interesting because he initially started a new uh party with uh uh Jerry Baudet's former confidant current arse nemesis hank otter so it would it would also be (laughs) ironic on that uh uh uh, given that little fact yeah
1: yeah yeah, perhaps they can uh, drink a glass of white wine together (laughs) yeah (laughs) (laughs) and then throw it into the uh, and then then instead of chucking it into the pot plants in sports news this year's Tata steel chess tournament was a stay-at-home affair and it produced a homegrown winner for the first time in 36 years Jorden van Verheest was the surprise winner of the competition in Valkansee, he beat the Swedish Grandmaster Niels Grandelius in the twelfth and final round, and then pipped adopted Dutchman Anish Geary in the Armageddon tiebreak round. Uh, yeah, we'll get into what exactly what armageddon tiebreaks are in a bit, but I uh, <laughs> d- d- just, d- d- just want Thank to you. say for that <laughs> Van Foreest is 21 years old, and he's the first Dutchman to win since Jan Timman in 1985. And he's got some pedigree. His great great grandfather Arnold Van Foreest was three times Dutch chess champion in from oh. 1889 to 1902. His great great uncle Dirk is also three times Dutch chess champion. His younger brother Lucas is also grandmaster, and his sister Machteld became the first girl to win the Dutch under. 12 championships in 2017. Imagine what Christmas must wow. be like in the fun for race household, eh? <laughs> <laughs> what yeah. do you get a this year dad? Uh, oh, how nice, another chessboard. <laughs>
0: yeah,
1: yeah. So, fun for wow.
0: impressive family, I have to admit. Very impressive,
1: yeah, in all yeah. seriousness. Yeah, uh, definitely, sort of, uh, yeah. Um, Fanfare's win lifted him from 67th to 33rd in the world rankings and is his first major tournament win. He said afterwards he felt on top of the world, so as well as being a master of chess openings, he's also clearly studied his sporting cliches.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, indeed. Um, uh, where was this held? In Aymouden, wasn't it? It was okay, yeah, in which is just
1: uh, uh, a bit north of, uh, of Aymouden, I think. It's one of those uh, little uh, resorts in the dunes.
0: F- very nice atmosphere over there in the middle of uh, of the most heavily polluted area in the Netherlands. But, yeah, uh, that's <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Everyone is indoors. Uh, and- yeah. Yeah, chess is uh, getting really popular now, it seems, isn't it? (laughs) Yes, uh, board games in general
1: have been enjoying a boon in lockdown, but chess (laughs) is doing well as a spectator sport as well, uh, partly because of the success of uh, The Queen's Gambit on Netflix. According to chess.com, more than 700,000 people tuned in on the final day, and 80,000 were watching when Fanfareist played his winning moves in the Armageddon game so um, it, apparently I just, I, I'm not a big uh, chess fanatic so I had to look this up uh, Armageddon apparently because they finished level on points um, Fanforeston and Geary um, d- 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 they had to then have a playoff but they drew the two uh, original playoff games and they played an Armageddon match where you can't draw because um, uh, if uh, if it is a draw then black is the winner but in return white gets more time on the clock that's how that works
0: I still don't understand any of it but no. the name Armageddon <laughs> seems to be very very fitting for uh, for 2020 and 2021 I have Indeed. to admit. Yeah. Um, and there's also some football uphef as well isn't there very yes, exciting uphef
1: uh, yep Ajax uh, fans went ballistic on Twitter this week because they found out their record signing Sebastian Allaire won't be able to play in the Europa League this winter <laughs> and the reason for and that why, why well, is that <laughs> <laughs>
2: well,
1: the reason is that the club missed him off the list of players it submitted to UEFA so he's not registered to play in in the knockout stages oh wow <laughs> so they paid 22.5 million euros for this guy and then forgot to uh, write his name on a form so th- this is <sighs> kind of I think uh, Eric Ten is going to have to become the next justice minister
0: yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah indeed. Yeah.
1: Ajax coach wow. yeah so, so there's a lot of yeah absolutely yeah, Ajax fans are just absolutely furious and everyone else is bewildered they could make this um, yeah basic administrative mistake it's up there I think with uh, the D66 uh, using the wrong color pencil um, uh, yeah. to, when they were choosing the senators and then they lost the senator as a result <laughs>
0: yeah 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 indeed yeah it seems uh, that Ajax is also run by the health ministry um, <laughs> yeah uh,
1: yeah so bikes coach Egerton ten Hag told a press conference, quote, It's something with computers. Checking and unchecking a box. That's where it went it wrong. And sounds so- like a GGD uh, <laughs> vaccination software uh, It does. It is, yeah. yeah, Sounding increasingly like a dad who's taken the wrong turn of a motorway on a family road trip, ten Haag went yeah. on. It's nothing to laugh about. It's
0: incredibly annoying. Except, of course... It, is, it is definitely something to laugh <laughs> about, Absolutely, yeah. yeah, Yeah. And um, there's also more sport uphef. Uh, which i uh, kind of surprised that you failed to uh, to mention this but it, it's starting to freeze again in the Netherlands and it yes. means that everyone starts to talk about the Tocht, this 200, over 200 kilometers well race on the ice in Friesland um, but the organization has already said in November that the uh, Elfstedentocht will not go through yeah. whatever happens so now we have temperatures dropping below minus uh, 15 uh, minus fifteen degrees so everybody's excited for the Elfstedentocht. But it will not. We won't have enough stayed Docht yeah. Even though we might have enough ice finally, uh, 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 yeah, for 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 it. So yeah, for the, yeah. F- for the first time
1: since 1997, wasn't it uh, the last episode, 96, the last Elso
0: stayed I, 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 I know that it was held in 1997. I just always forget if it was also held one year before or one year after that. No, it
1: wasn't. It was the 80s. There were two in a row, uh, not the 90s. Oh, uh, yeah.
0: oh okay. Um,
1: but yeah, yeah, it would be the ultimate 2021 um, uh, development <laughs> if we finally had the conditions <laughs> for the Alceda Tocht and it didn't go ahead because of coronavirus.
0: <laughs> yeah, 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 indeed. Yeah. But it has to freeze uh, for
1: about two weeks, doesn't it? It looks as if this big freeze is not going to last that long. So probably we wouldn't quite get the conditions but everyone's getting very no, excited exactly. in, in any other year we would already start be starting to see Frisian sports administrators in their fleeces on the television every evening talking about yeah, where, exactly. talking about uh, you know and, and people going out onto the ice uh, with their brooms at midnight to try to, to sweep to clear them of snow which is my favorite moment yeah but
0: yeah yeah, yeah. because snow is very bad for ice to grow yes uh, Ironically. Uh yeah that's uh, the 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 chair of the Elf State, uh organization um, board was on TV last night and he uh, he was asked if he was already excited and he said no I'm not because uh I know I realize that we need two weeks of of, of freezing yeah. of below 10 uh, 10 degrees of freezing, and uh, it's not going to happen, so he wasn't he already knows that it's not uh, the conditions won't be met, so he's not excited. Yeah. he's a very very cool guy, very down to earth uh, Friesian.
1: yeah, he's very phlegomatic, isn't he? Yeah. Yeah. yeah So yes, speaking of events that uh, may or may not go ahead, that brings us round to Eurovision poll.
0: Yes, uh, while the Dutch government seems to be unable to organize basically anything these days, one thing that will go ahead in May is the Eurovision Song Contest in Rotterdam. The Netherlands was supposed to host the song contest last year after Duncan Lawrence won the edition in 2019 in... I believe it was Israel. I meant to look this up, but I oh. forgot to do it. So I'm just going to assume that <laughs> it was gonna, Israel. You're just going to make us yeah, and then we'll apologize next week for the fake news. Yeah, yeah, for the fake yeah. news. So we, we won in 2019. That's the, that's the point. Um, but for the first time in history, the musical equivalent of waterboarding was canceled last year following the corona pandemic. The organization came up with four possible scenarios, but have already ruled out an unrestricted show in front of 16,500 spectators. Depending on the government government's restrictions in May, Eurovision hopes to see all 41 performers on stage with an audience of 80% of the Ahoy Arena's capacity and another alternative is a travel restricted version with performances streamed and a limited number of associated events. There's also a plan for a total lockdown edition with no side events and only the TV presenters in the arena. While the Eurovision Song Contest will go ahead in any event, it remains unknown if this will also be the case for our beloved Domino D-Day. Mm. Which I care more about. I have to admit. It's much
1: more important. Yeah, yeah, and also yeah, and, and also yeah. But if they have Domino D Day this um, this year, will they have uh, Dominoes in the stands cheering like they do on Marble Mania? Uh, <laughs> Did, do you watch that Gordon? I, I tuned in last night for the first time. <laughs> it was quite surreal. It was indeed quite <laughs> surreal.
0: Who who were the who were the guests over there? Because when I saw it, I, I believe last week uh, yeah. we had Ronald de Boer and uh, Wesley Schneider and Giovanni van Bronckhorst, and they were footballing with uh, with marbles. It yeah. was it was it was the most surreal thing ever, indeed.
1: It is is quite bizarre. Yeah, <clears throat> just watching people like ch- chasing marbles round and round a course and then cheering them on like you can somehow influence how the marbles roll <laughs> it's amazing
0: yeah, you can't, you can't do anything <laughs> exactly. about it it's yeah. gravity yeah, <laughs> yeah.
1: Uh, have you ever seen a huge success at Marble Mania hasn't it it's been uh, yeah, one, of the, one of the success stories of lockdown
0: it is a TV hit apparently yeah, yeah. yeah. and I don't understand why but no. um uh, John the Mall has a way to, uh, to come up with these ridiculous ideas which turn out to be uh, huge successes so uh, he done it again
1: yeah For the second half of this podcast, I'm talking to Mella Khashgachen of the NSA newspaper. Mella has been NSA's London correspondent since 2016, and his five-year stay has been dominated by the big beasts of Brexit and coronavirus. He's now moving back to Amsterdam to join the editorial team, so I asked if I could interrupt his packing to get his reflections on the last five years and his thoughts on returning home. Welcome, Mela, and thank you for joining the podcast. Uh, After covering British politics for the last five years, I guess the first question I should ask is, have you booked a good
2: therapist? (laughs) Well, thank you for having me on. Um, uh, No, I I, I haven't booked a good therapist. Uh, 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 I haven't had the need for one. Um, I wrote a book over the the first lockdown in the summer, and I guess, you know, uh, looking back on all my notes and all my travels and interviews, And and processing that into a book, that's sort of a a way of of, uh, dealing with with things. Um, So that really worked. Um, And it was good to look back on everything.
1: Yeah, definitely. I mean, you arrived in London after you spent four years in uh, Jakarta as the Southeast Asian correspondent. Did did you expect it to be relatively quiet?
2: Uh, No, I didn't. Um, I mean, I knew I was going to come here um, before the referendum um and i watched the 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 brexit referendum in june 2016 from jakarta and because of the time difference it was in the middle of the day um and i knew that you know i was watching bbc and sky and 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 whatever the outcome it would it would pretty much determine um my posting in in, in london and as as the day grew i um uh, well I, I saw the result flip from 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 remain to leave, and I thought, okay, this is going to be a couple of very interesting, very busy, but very interesting years. Did you see
1: the uh, Brexit result, uh, the Leave vote coming? Because it took a lot of people by surprise. I Me, mean, I, I, I certainly
2: uh, expected the vote to go the other way. No, no, not at all. Um, you know, referendums are um, are always quite unpredictable. Look at the uh, the referendums on Europe in 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 Netherlands. They don't go the way. The most political parties want them to go, so I, I guess there was a warning in there, but nobody really read the leaves properly, uh, mm. and neither did I. Um, uh, I thought it was a, a huge shock, uh, but now with you know almost five years of, of of UK experience, I, looking back on it, yeah, I'm not gonna say I'm not surprised, but 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 there's definitely it didn't come out of nowhere, put it that way.
1: You made the point that you uh, you make a big point about the fact that you like to get out into the country and get out of London and uh, see what uh, people are thinking and saying in places like Sheffield and Morecambe. What were the impressions that you got when you uh, when you travelled around the country of uh, of exactly what was going on and uh, how Brexit
2: came to be? Well, the thing I like doing most is, is is connecting politics, Westminster politics, with what people think and feel and experience outside of Westminster, outside of London, as far away as you can get. And, you know, I really just found normal people. You know, there, there's often the sense in, in, in the, the Dutch way of looking at the UK, you know, that Brexit voters were all xenophobic, horrible, Euroskeptic, nasty people. And, and I ne- almost never found that to be the case. Uh, you know, they're, they're very normal, friendly, uh, likable people who like talking to European journalists, but who feel that they've been let down by their politicians in, in a massive way. Um, and if you go to many of these areas, you know, I, I can blame them. Uh, you know, poverty levels, uh, the lack of infrastructure. Um, you know, it seems like quite a lot of parts of the UK have just been you know, pretty much forgotten.
1: And uh, what was your impression of why people connected that to the European Union, necessarily, that the, the, their circumstances were often not very favorable? Um, and, uh, and often when they, when they spoke about why, the, the answer seemed to be uh, because of Brussels or that it would be better if we weren't in the EU.
2: Well, I, I think there's was a very opportunistic and pragmatic explanation to it. You know, they got a chance to vote on something and, you know, they just stuck it to, to Westminster politics. Um, and I think there's sort of a deeper explanation, and, and, and that is people quite often told me they feel that they have no influence on, on decision-making. It might be a, a constituency where the MP has been elected you know, four or five times in a row, or, or something even uh, 30, 40 years, and the MP might not be around that often and might not care that much anymore about the wishes of his or her constituents. and. You know, there's this urge to have influence and, and, and see the results of, of, of their wishes and have more decisions on, 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 a, on a local level. And London feels far away, but Brussels feels even farther away. The whole Brexit
1: debate has been a very emotional affair and uh, quite different from, I mean, the, the, uh, I know there's a. Um, often the pictures painted in the Netherlands of British people is that they're very rational and they're very kind of um, uh, undercooled, not quick to anger um, and quite conservative in their outset. Has that shifted, do you think, as a result of Brexit? Has your um, impression of British people changed since you've been there?
2: Well, I, I think in one of the articles uh, we did in a, in a special, uh, a Brexit special uh, on January thirty-first uh, last year, we officially buried the cliche "keep cal- uh, keep calm and carry on." Yes, uh, you know that's that, that's over. <laughs> that doesn't apply anymore. Um, no, I, I think British people uh, on the whole are actually quite uh, quite passionate, quite emotional. I think there's there's a greater tendency here to look at things from uh, maybe more of an ideological point of view, or uh, have a debate uh, based on radical points of view. Whereas in the Netherlands, you know, we tend to, even in politics, we don't like politics. You know, last week, leading up to the election, uh, one of the most important politicians in the country pulled a political act and announced that the primary schools would reopen. There was sort of this this, this dismay of, ooh, he's using political uh, uh, tricks. Yes, of course he needs to be the politician. (laughs) And I think in the UK, there's more of an acceptance that, you know, politicians will be politicians and they'll, they'll, they'll do politics and sometimes that's a bit dirty you know? the, 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 there's nothing wrong with that per se.
1: Um, you also spend a lot of time uh, traveling around the nations of the UK because there's been uh, discussions about uh, the impact of Brexit on Ireland and uh, that the Scottish independence question is still there. From your point of view do, do you think Brexit is a real uh, threat to the UK's continuing existence?
2: I think it's Very difficult to say. I mean, obviously, right now, there's a strong momentum in in, in Scotland for independence. The gap in the polls has widened. It it did coincide with uh, the Brexit vote or with the UK actually leaving, uh, but with the handling of the pandemic. Um, You know, Nicola Sturgeon has, and I quote uh, a a UK politician who told me this off the record, the theater of competence, which is something different than being competent, but she, she appears very competent. She's very good in in, in, in in her communication skills, and that has really widened the gap in the poll. So there's definitely a, a push for for independence. But I think if, if there is a, a second referendum, I'm, I'm sure that the arguments will be scrutinised a lot more. And you know, just just this week there was a, a paper by um, a bunch of economists from I think it was LSE. You know, if Brexit is is, is detrimental to the Scottish economy, uh, leaving the the British single market. Is is way more detrimental. So it's it, it's a tough case. It's a tough argument, and I think it's uh, it could happen, but I, I don't think it's a it's a foregone conclusion.
1: Yeah, yeah. Uh, I think I think you mentioned um, in your uh, uh, in your reporting is that, is that people uh, and, and you mentioned it earlier on here is, is that people have the sense that the government is very far away. Uh, do, do you think that's uh, a lot of what underpins um, the movement towards Brexit and towards Scottish independence? That people just want politics to be more responsive to their concerns. I think it's,
2: it's, it's, it's more complicated because it, it also has to do with the complete implosion of, of Scottish Labour. So if you're on the left of the political centre at this point in time, it's only one party you can turn to. And, and that's either well, the Greens who are pro-independence or the SNP. So that plays into it. But yeah, I think in, 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 in a large part, people want an accountable government, um, that, they have a feeling, you know, they can reach out to, and that's going to be responsive. And you, know, you can make the case that the SNP, uh, you know, doesn't live, live up to that either, because you know they've been in power uh, in one way or another since 2007 in in Scotland, and and some of the societal problems they find very important are still still rampant. So it's not like um, uh, they're completely proving uh, uh, the case that you know they can make a difference. But I, I, yeah, I, I do think that's, you know, that's very important. I, I was talking to a, a, a fisherman up in in Shetland, and as you might know, people in Shetland have a complicated relationship with the rest of Scotland. Mm. But he said, well, you know, we have all these rules on 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 fishing and fisheries and our nets and what we can can, can catch and can't catch. You know, and we have never ever seen an official from the European Commission up in Shetland to you know, talk to us or to inspect our our trawlers or whatever. Mm whereas we do see people from, from you know, uh, the Scottish government. And, you know, that made them more approachable and, and more likable, even though they're probably implementing the same rules.
1: Yeah, yeah. Uh, obviously, Brexit has dominated your time in the UK, but also the coronavirus <coughs> pandemic in the last 12 months. And uh, you, uh, early in the first wave, uh, you, you took your family to uh, your uh, holiday home up in Wales. So uh, mm-hmm. how was that as a vantage point uh, to see what was going on?
2: Well, um, it, it sort of happened by chance. I mean, we, we left right before lockdown, so we didn't break any rules. We didn't peddle yeah. Dominic Cummings. Um, and then basically, at, at, when we are there, once we were there, we, we weren't allowed to stay there, but we weren't allowed to leave either. <laughs> so we, we didn't know what to do. Um, so we asked all the, uh, all the other people in our in our little, little hamlets, uh, um, you know, what do you think we should do? Should, do you want us to stay or do you want us to leave? Either way, it's fine. And they said, "No, you're 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 very welcome, and mm-hmm. and and stay." Um, even though at the same time, uh, on the BBC there was quite a lot of news on, on, on Welsh nationalism uh, rearing its head, and and you know all these graffiti things on on the side of the road. You know, Wales is closed. tourists go home. You know, in mm-hmm. English, not on a whale, So so you know, who it started at that. Yes. Um, but you know, the people were very friendly uh, to us. Well, I I guess my vantage point is is. It's strange to all of a sudden realize that England and Wales, London and where we are, you know, they're really not in the same country. All of a sudden, out of nowhere, we have to deal with this, you know, de facto border. We're really to travel back home. Mm. And, uh, you know, for the last couple of uh, months, you know, we're not allowed to go to our very much loved little cottage there because, you know, we're not allowed to go into Wales. Whereas, you know, I, I was reading a book on Britain from, I think it was in 20, 30 years ago. And they're, they they do not really even distinguish between Wales and England as being separate countries. Yeah. So on the one hand, devolution has, has really created the sense of, you know, you have the four nations within the United Kingdom and they have their own powers and their own identities and their own cultures and, and partly their own languages. And that's, I think in a way that's positive because that does give people the, the sense that, you know, there, there is a government that's out there to, to fight for their cause. But on the other hand, you know, these divisions, uh, in 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 testing times as, as as now you know they can become quite I would not say dangerous but you know they they do pull the UK uh, apart. I mean, did, did you have a sense
1: when you when you in Wales as you say you happened to be there when the lockdown started um, that, that the that you were looking at it from a from a different place uh, than uh, the correspondents who uh, who were still based in London.
2: In a way, not really because everyone's stuck at home. So in that sense, no. But obviously, because we were there, we we watched. Where we followed the Welsh news quite co- closely, and you do see different a different approach between the Conservative government in London and, and and the Labour government in Wales. You know, you really do notice that you know Wales has, especially in 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 in, in, in rural areas where we are, uh, you know, very little uh, healthcare facilities, uh, uh, quite a lot of vulnerable and elderly people. So the um, there is not much room for things to uh, to really go wrong. I mean, there's hardly been any COVID cases where, where where we've been or where we are. Um, but still, you know, you only need one one little spreading event for the local NHS to get overwhelmed.
1: If you have the choice of um, uh, a country with a, a more severe pandemic, but swifter vaccinations or fewer deaths and hospitalizations, but uh, less progress on vaccination, where, where
2: do you feel more comfortable? Huh. Um, <laughs> that's a really good question. And that's one I've been asking myself quite a lot recently. I, I, I really don't know. I still have this sense that the Dutch vaccination program will sort of catch up a bit. I don't. I, I don't think we'll, you know, keep lagging behind. You know, every single European country from now until the end of the pandemic, no way. Uh, if you look at the recent figures, it's actually been improving a bit. But I think, you know, deeper down, you know, this idea that in the Netherlands something has to be perfectly thought out and planned for, and you know, the, the IT systems has to be perfect and there has to be tested and you know, no room for error and then you can implement something whereas in the uk you know it, it was amazing it was mass mobilization and um uh, uh, people just you know made it happen mm. and uh, i think it's been it's been really impressive and 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 there is a bit more risk because because of the 10 million people in the uk who've been vaccinated and 90 percent of them have only gotten one shot uh, one jab so you know, there's still some uncertainty you, doesn't have a detrimental effect, so I don't think the UK is out of the woods either. Um, but the way they've just, you know, created this this, this mass mobilization out of nowhere, it, 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 it's deeply impressive.
1: Yeah, so so you see, kind of, the, the UK has had a um, the attitude of just get on with this and sort out the details, and the, the the Dutch have a tendency to endlessly discuss things in advance.
2: Well, I think in the UK the danger is that in the Netherlands everything that's British is viewed through. Brexit, populism, and Boris Johnson. And that's a very dangerous attitude to have because you write off this very important, talented, um, multifaceted nation of 65 million people. And if you look at the British Civil Service or you know, even the NHS, and I'm actually quite critical of the NHS. I think it's underfunded. I think it's... You know, I had to go to, uh, to hospital with my, with my daughter for, for a minor thing a couple of months ago. It's one of the big London hospitals and it felt so dilapidated, you know, it needs so much, it needs more funds, it needs a uh, uh, massive investment. But, you know, at this point in time, it, it just works. Uh, and and, and the, the, the deep love and respect that British people have for the NHS, it, 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 it's amazing to see
1: yeah I'm always fascinated that just how much interest there is in the Netherlands in news and Britain and British society and politics, especially when you compare it with say Germany, when mm-hmm. arguably the Netherlands and Germany are more similar as countries well, why do you think there is that uh, strong cultural
2: link well, i think on on the one hand it's a language thing I mean you know Dutch people grow up watching you know British and American movies listening to to their music so I think the idea they can penetrate deeper and more easily into British society and the amount of Dutch people who speak German I think it's out know, have any figures but 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 I'm sure it, it, it's decreased over the last 20-30 years mm-hmm. and I also think there's a you know cultural link it's it's this idea of, of you know both being pragmatic uh, open-minded uh, uh, people with nations who depend on, on, on trading and uh, their, their historical similarities, you know, both former, former dominant colonial powers. Mm. Uh, so so, so th- there's a lot to be shared. I always notice on on Twitter Dutch and and British diplomats, you know, they always post pictures of you know the same type of skies or rainy days or beaches or you know uh, North, North Sea neighbours. Of course, it's a diplomat's job to to forge ties, even though you know sometimes they're not even there. Uh, but I think in this case, you know, they have a point.
1: Do you see that uh, connection weakening as we move into the post-Brexit uh, world, or do you think the um, the, the things that underpin it and the cultural connections uh, will will
2: will, will, uh, will mean it survives? well i think i think it will weaken because it's it's going to be more difficult to go back and forth yeah. uh, last year i did a very nice article with uh with a colleague of mine in amsterdam and we took the uh, the ferry the the standard line from uh, Hoek van holland to heritage with a group of either dutch people who spend a big part of their life in britain or the other way around and we talked about you know what what is it like to move from one place to the other and uh, you know, fall in love, find work, uh divorce and stay behind or, you know, everything. You know, what's it like to live a life in two nations? And... Just the the ease of be, being able to go back and forth it was so important for uh, for their personal history and their family history. Mm. And if you have to, uh, you know, meet a point system to be able to get a job in 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 Britain, uh, or you have to meet visa requirements to get a job in the Netherlands, or you know, as a university student uh, in uh, in Leeds, you can't just go to the University of Amsterdam or the other way around. You know, those ties are going to weaken. Now, as is
1: customary uh, for Foreign Correspondents, you've managed to uh, publish a book reflecting on your experiences before you leave. Uh, what makes yours stand out from all the, um, the, 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 the reams of other um, uh, books about the UK on the shelves of Dutch bookshops?
2: Ha, huh. good question. Um, you know, I, I, I look at the UK from the point of view of not only politics. Uh, you know, I, I skipped most of the traditional Fair of you know royalties and the more cultural aspects of of the UK. I really look at it from the point of view of, of England, North of England, Wales, Scotland, and Northern Ireland, and and how do these entities coexist in the future and uh, what's pulling at them and um, uh, is, is is there a future in in the union i i don't come to a, a definitive conclusion because because you know that's very dangerous mm. as a journalist to, to look into the future but i do show why the united kingdom is is, is not as united as as this and why also the referendum vote in 2016 is radical but if you Dig a little deeper. The reasoning for it is is not so radical for all the reasons we we discussed in the, in this podcast. So I think it uh it's a good read for uh, for Dutch people to um, sort of get rid of the idea that you know the Brexit vote was an act of, of of lunacy. The results might be damaging to to, to to the British economy and 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 the future of the UK as a as, as a global nation, global power. But the, the reasoning behind it was actually quite I wouldn't say rational, but it was you know these people didn't think they were doing anything out of the ordinary
1: yeah, so when you collected your thoughts, you could see the origins of this that, uh, that, that there was there wasn't something that just uh, appeared out of nowhere
2: yes exactly and 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 also the this idea that you know Brits are inherently more Eurosceptic than than the Dutch of course you know there are historical differences uh, the u k is is not a founding member of the eu british politicians on 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 bo- you know, on both sides, you know, both the Labour and Conservatives have this ambivalent relationship with European integration and, and giving up sovereignty. But most normal people I talk to in Britain, if I compare them to you know, normal people in, in the Netherlands when I visit my parents who live in, in, in Zeeland, um, you know, it's pretty much the same arguments. You know, you too much money, too far away, why do we need this? So I, even though people show that there's something like an 80 or 90% support in the Netherlands for EU membership, hmm. you know, that, that is something you have to continue to defend if you want the Netherlands to be part of the EU. It's not something you can take for granted because I think the right politician could make a very effective argument and, and really push a Euroskeptic uh, cause in, in the Netherlands.
1: Do you think there is a a danger that this kind of very tribal political climate you see in Britain now with two almost irreconcilable camps could uh, arise in the Netherlands too? Or do you think the system uh, makes that less likely?
2: I I think the system makes it less likely. And I think if you you break it down in the UK, there is actually much more of a Consensus way of doing politics below the surface because, you know, both you know, within the Labour Party and within the Conservatives, you have all these different factions and, and you know, they have to find some, some way of coexisting and formulating party policy. So it's more done on, on, on that level and less between parties. Um, but I, I don't think the Netherlands will ever turn into a, a system with two dominant parties. I don't, I don't think that will ever happen in the Netherlands.
1: What are you going to miss most about
2: uh, Britain? Do you think traveling? I just love the the way. If I get on a train in London and you know five hours later I'm I'm in Scotland or uh, you know on the other side of the country, it, it, it's so completely different. It's like you know those extremes. That's something you don't have in Netherlands. I'm going to miss the creativity, just the the, the fact that people are. So I was spoken and like voicing their opinions in the newspaper. You know, I talk to colleagues in back in Amsterdam, and they say, you know, if you go out on a, on a reporting trip, it's really difficult, you know, to get people to give their their first and their and their last name for for an article in the newspaper. And I've actually never ever ever had that problem in the UK uh, when it comes to Brexit stories. At least people are always willing to 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 have a chat and be open and and voice their opinion. And and, and I really like that.
1: Yeah. Nice. And will you get a bit of a break here before you start, or are you, are you straight into work on the first of March? Because the election is coming up, of course. Well,
2: I get a bit of break because I have to quarantine for ten days. So, right, oh, um, of course, yes, that's a forced break. <laughs> yeah. So w- once I arrive, or we arrive, and I'm talking with my family. Once we arrive in the Netherlands, we uh, we have to to, to self isolate. So that's that's a forced break, and then it's and from the first of March, it's uh, it, it's a new job, and I'm, I'm sure I'll get. Uh, I get sucked right in, and it's going, it's going to be you know, very interesting. Elections coming up, potential third wave with the uh, the British variant, and I absolutely yes. hate that name. Uh, <laughs> um, yeah. uh, I was watching the or, or listening on the radio to the press conference two weeks ago, and I think they said the British variant, the British variant, about yeah. thirty-five times in the span. Of yeah, two or, minutes, or the I English think.
1: virus. They, they switched between calling it the British and the English virus.
2: Yeah, I, I think it's quite strange. I mean, you know, last year when when Donald Trump called COVID. Our coronavirus you know the chinese virus everybody, everybody was um, uh, was angry because you know that's, that's so intense because you can't say that why create animosity with china and and now it's like okay but if the british variant what is the variant of the chinese virus or yes. <laughs> has, has coronavirus become you know a dutch virus it's, it doesn't make sense and i, th- I think after a year of, of pandemic we should be able to to, to, to to talk about these matters in a bit more of a responsible manner, You know, it's the fact that, you know, British scientists found this variant in Kent, it's proof to how well, uh, uh, you know, the UK scientific community is, is dealing with this because, you know, they're actually doing this, you know, the sequencing and, and, and the testing, whereas in, in, in many parts of the world they're not. So the fact that they discovered it, it goes to show that they're, you know, they got their eye on the ball. Thank you very much for joining us uh, this morning,
1: Mella. Um, and um, yeah, I wish you all the best with uh, your your packing and your quarantining, and um, uh, yeah, and, and with your new and with your new job. Well, thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. That's all we have for you this week. This podcast is a production of Dutch News, which can be found online at DutchNews.nl. We'll include links to everything we talked about today in the liner notes. You can get in touch with us by email to podcast at DutchNews.nl. And if you want to help us out, please subscribe to the podcast and leave us a rating. You can also back us on Patreon at patreon.com dutchnewsnl and earn yourself a free shout out on the podcast. My thanks to Paul Peters and to our guest, Melle Khasrachen. I'm Gordon Darach and we'll be back next week.